Let's officially begin our study on the Minor Prophets by turning to the book of Hosea. It's 751 in the Blue Bible, in the seat back in front of you, if you'd like to look at that. 751. Or use your own copy of God's Word. I'm technically preaching the book of Hosea, but it's 14 chapters, so I will not be reading the entire text this morning, (laughs) just to warn you ahead of time. We'll actually be focusing on chapters 1 through 3, which are something of a gateway into the entire book. If you can grasp these few chapters, you'll get the rest of it. And so that's where the remainder, I mean, the focus of our time will be this morning. We'll be looking at Hosea chapters 1 through 3. It's been fun for me to prepare for this series in particular. Uh, I gave the church family a homework assignment this week and asked if you would read the book of Hosea in preparation for our time together this morning. And so I tried to do that myself. I tried to do it with my family. We didn't make it all the way through. But we did have uh, one interesting night around the dinner table in which we were reading the opening chapters uh, to the children, and one of them piped up and asked the inevitable and awkward question, an awkward question for anybody in here who is a parent who has a child under the age of nine or ten years old. And parents, I'm going to let you handle this one. What is a whore? It's a good question. So I explained uh, to the child in question uh, what that is, (laughs) and um, the response I thought was fantastic. They said, and this is in the Bible? (laughs) We should be shocked. It should stun us. This idea of sexual infidelity a lack of purity. The strange thing is, is that such a word, such a concept in our culture isn't quite as shocking as we would want it to be. And because of that, the impact of the book of Hosea is actually minimized in people's minds. I mean, the mention of, for example, just extra marital sexual relations in our own culture seems rather banal, ho-hum, common, ordinary. I think that our age is rather schizophrenic on the topic. There is a sense in which we understand uh, that uh, this is a big deal deep down inside, but nobody in the larger world, not the church world, but the larger world really wants to admit that it matters all that much. Sexual fidelity has been minimized from um, just basic movies that kind of permeate our culture. A couple of examples, I think of Pretty Woman by Julia Roberts. You have this kind of friendly woman of the night, and she eventually falls in love, but nobody watches that and thinks, oh, this is absolutely horrible. Another example, less known, but for those of you who are movie purists, you would remember the bridges of Madison County. It's an interesting tale. Clint Eastwood is, plays the lead. And in this, you find yourself inevitably, 
unwittingly cheering for this guy and girl to get together even though they're married to another. It's just, it's, it's baked in to the culture. We think that, oh, well, they just fell in love with the wrong people, and therefore uh, their expressions of love should not be limited to the one that they covenanted with. Rather, it should go to the one that they crave. And because of that, we're not all that concerned. Not only do you have those things, but then add to this the pervasiveness of Internet pornography. And what happens is extramarital sexual activity of all shapes, sizes, and configurations plays itself across the consciences of people, minimizing the shock of a book like Hosea. But the truth is, our culture hasn't fully given up on the significance of the sexual relationship. The special nature of this can uh, be seen uh, rather ironically in the rise of the hashtag MeToo movement. You may remember that from a few years ago where everyone was coming out and speaking against abuse in high places, especially in the church. And the whole movement was actually conveying something, that as much as our culture has tried to minimize sex, it means something. Slapping someone in the face is different than assault of that nature. It's a violation of something deeper. And so we understand that despite the world's best attempts to minimize the book of Hosea and its opening themes of adultery should indeed shock us. It should stun us. We, we should be aghast. We should be disturbed. Why, to quote my child, would the Scriptures speak on this? I think it's in part because of uh, the pain that it brings up. I mean, the, those, unfortunately, even in this room, or many of us could even imagine, and I've even seen this in my own family uh, as a child, those of us who have seen this happen firsthand, like understand the emotional damage that it does to the one who remained faithful. There's this violation of expectations, the rug that's been pulled out from under you, the fear that love is gone and that pain will persist forever, the emotional insecurity from having been shunned by one who committed their life to you. Even in this, there's such betrayal that, that someone could be left wondering, what else did this person lie to me about? Was he lying when he said, I love you? Was she lying when she said, I'm lucky to be your wife? Then there's the uncontrollable tears and the anger and the feelings of insufficiency that somehow uh, you were not enough. I mean, the reading of this, hearing of this, especially in such graphic detail in these chapters, will cause you pain. You feel sorry for the one who has endured such an experience. But they not only put you in the spot of the one cheated against, but these few chapters will also put you in the place of the one who did the cheating. 
They are intentionally designed to provoke your own guilt, to have you question your own fidelity to the Lord. The anxiety, the guilt, the shame, the worry, the regret, the confusion, the embarrassment, and the self-loathing of knowing that one has been unfaithful to God who has been so faithful to them. The wondering if this will impact them for the rest of their life, the, the embarrassment that we had put other things or other people above God, it should provoke the pain, the pain of the cheated, the pain of the cheater. And as I warned you last week, this is what the prophets do. Whereas uh, the, the Deuteronomy in particular, the Torah, uh, was trying to give us the rule book, uh, what the prophets do is not just focus on the intellect, but the emotion. Uh, they're actually uh, bridging the gap for you between what we think of as the head and the heart. It's one thing to look and read uh, the Florida laws about seatbelts. It's something else to see a video depicting the gruesome results of a fatal accident for one who wasn't wearing a seatbelt. This is the video clip of the accident. This is the picture of what it looks like to put another in front of God Himself. And this is the design of the prophets. This is the genre with which we're dealing here you need to remember not only the prophetic role, but you'll note in chapter 1, verse 1, that this particular prophecy occurs in a point in history. Notice in your text, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Historically, you need to know what's going on. These kings' names may not mean much to you, but they help you date the book. When was this being written? Well, this actually reveals for us that this was probably written in the 8th century B.C., which would have been a, t a high point in Israel's history. And when I say Israel, please do not automatically assume a united Israel. You may remember from your time in um, just history or Sunday school that uh, the nation of Israel, after the, the reign of Solomon, was split in two. There was a civil war, and then they were divided into the north and the south. Uh, in the north, you had ten tribes. In the south, you had uh, Judah and Benjamin. The south is normally called Judah, just because it was the biggest tribe of the south. You know what the north is often called? Ephraim, because it was the biggest tribe in the north. And so, as you're reading through Hosea, you'll keep seeing this call out to Ephraim, and you're like, man, what did this one tribe do? <laughs> They're just calling out the biggest tribe because it identifies the entire area, kind of like saying, I used to live in Los Angeles. That's just the biggest city around where I used to live. I didn't live technically in L.A. proper. I lived in Santa Clarita. And so, we do this here. There's this large swath of land. The ten northern tribes are going to be identified, called out, singled out. And in this point in their history, this northern tribe was doing fantastic. They had had a little bit of political unrest, but they were prosperous. Things were good as you could possibly imagine. Uh, they were safe, and it seemed like the Civil War had worked out for them. All seemed to be well, and in light of that, they got fat and happy and complacent. And they started being less careful. 
most careful about this exclusive worship and allegiance to Yahweh alone. As you read through the book of Hosea, you'll find out that the thing that most concerns the prophet is their divided loyalty. Instead of looking to God alone for their satisfaction and safety and sustenance, instead they started looking to other countries and their gods. You're going to see these appeals to the nation of Assyria, for example, or Egypt, or the god Baal. And so they were clamoring for additional prosperity by thinking, okay, we'll be, we'll be faithful to Yahweh and uh, we're going to seek the benefits that can only come from these other sources that have been forbidden to us by God. And their sin had not yet caught up with them. And Hosea in this book, all 14 chapters, is trying to warn them that you better repent or horrible things will be on the horizon in fact, what Hosea does as a prophet of God, and we'll see this in all the 12, is he's going to take the curses from the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 28 through 33. We'll be reading that in our scripture reading for the next few weeks. And he's going to start applying those curses to them, saying, remember all the things that God said that he would do if you disobeyed? They're going to apply to you right now. <laughs> Today in our scripture reading, we read about the blessings. Guess what? There are no blessings promised here because they have not obeyed. They are going to receive the curses. And so he's going to actually be applying these covenant curses and, and picturing them in creative ways. And that is what the book is, is trying to point out, that there is a judgment that is coming on account of your sin. That's where it starts. But here's the overarching idea. That's just the foundation. Judgment is coming. But there is a grace that is greater. That's Hosea. Though your rebellion is relentless, so is God's love. You read chapters 1 through 14, you'll see it. If you want the overall structure of the book, you'll see this picture of God's relentless love and grace in chapters 1 through 3. This is the opening lens with which you should view everything else. There's the picture of God's relentless love in chapters 1 through 3, and then there are the pronouncements of God's love in chapters 4 through 14. When you read those, you'll see lots of curses, but what you'll notice is that unexplainably, dotted throughout, God would say over and over again, I will still bless you in the end. I will still take care of you. I will still restore you. I will still be kind to you despite all that you've done to me. So let's focus on this picture that will help us understand the pronouncements later in the chapter. Basically, there is a montage here. We have three pictures or portraits in chapters 1 through 3 of God's relentless love for His people. The first portrait is what I'll call the family photo. The family photo. You'll see it here in chapter 1. Look with me at verse 2. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, Take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, friends, this is immensely disturbing. In fact, it is so disturbing that some people, scholars even, have tried to like harshen the blow, I mean, soften the blow of this particular verse by saying, God would never command Hosea to marry an immoral woman, a woman who was a harlot. Instead, uh, what it's saying is that maybe God knew ahead of time that she was going to be a harlot. 
The grammar just doesn't allow for that, friends. It says she was a wife of harlotry. This characterized her. Uh, The other week uh, in our study together, I was illustrating for you the difference between something that is conduct and something that is characteristic. And I use the analogy of a painter. I say that sometimes I have painted in times past, but no one would consider me a painter. It doesn't mark me. It's not characteristic of me. But in this particular case, I want you to understand, it's not that she had committed this crime at some point in the past. This marked her. She is a woman of harlotry. And so to begin with in this first portrait, I want you to particularly note God's loving initiative. This was no like June Cleaver in waiting. I mean, this was somebody who was living in defiance to God's command. And so God said, marry that one because this will uniquely picture my love. Notice the explanation in the second half of verse 2. Why would you marry a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom? The text says, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He says, I want you to enter into this relationship because it's going to show the relationship that I have with you, Israel, my people. Seems so strange and so odd. God is explaining that his people have turned against him in the sin that they have been unfaithful to him. And what's going to happen here is that, verse 3, it says that he went and took Gomer, very unfortunate name, Uh, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So what's fascinating is he doesn't do a prenup. He doesn't just say, let's test the waters. He doesn't say, hey, let's live together. He commits. He goes all in. In fact, he decides to have children with the woman in particular. And we'll see in the verses to come that he will have three. Basically, we're going to have a stunning picture of what it's like for God to enter into relationship with his people. It wasn't because they were so fantastic. It was despite the fact that they were so sinful that God would love them so deeply. And so we see this this picture. Uh, You've read the rule book, the law. Now see what it looks like when you've disobeyed it. It looks like adultery. And so, friends, we need to understand and where we fit in this. Of course, it is the nation of Israel, but, but where do we fit in said portrait? We're the unfaithful. We are the ones that were disloyal to our Creator. It wasn't just our activity, it was our identity. And yet, God actually decided to enter into relationship with us. Uh, he chose us. Uh, he made it lifelong, eternal. But something interesting happens. Even though there is a great love initiated by God, He'll still display righteous wrath. That's the second feature of this little portrait I want you to note. You'll see it in the other pictures as well. Even though God shows this loving initiative, He also displays righteous wrath. Now, in the verses to follow, starting from chapter, I mean, verse 4, all the way down to verse 9, we're going to get this introduction of, um, of Hosea's family, and you're going to see some interesting names there. Let your eyes scan those verses. Notice there is one named Jezreel, another named Lo-Ruhamah, and another named Loami. 
Now, if, if you were to uh, be just the normal ancient Near Eastern Israelite reading this particular book, when you hear the name Jezreel, it would be the equivalent of hearing in our own day the word uh, Hiroshima or Auschwitz. Uh, it, it was a place of slaughter. Historically, everyone would have recognized it as such. To you, it just seems like an ancient name. To them, it would have been a place where a bunch of really bad stuff went down. So one of the kids gets named the equivalent of Hiroshima. The next kid gets named uh, Lo Ruhama, which means basically not loved. And then the last kid is named not mine or not my people. So I want you to imagine uh, what this looks like. Remember, God is intending to communicate to Israel through the prophet and this act. This isn't just he's ruining Hosea's life. He's trying to communicate a message. And so Hosea marries this woman. She is unfaithful from the beginning. She remains unfaithful throughout. But it seems that she was able to stay with them long enough for them to have several kids. So I want you to imagine the process that would unfold over the years to come as they would interact with normal Israelite society. So this is a classic scene. I'll modernize it a little bit. You can see uh, Hosea and his cute little family at the park. Uh, Hosea is pushing little Jezreel on a swing. And beside him is a well-meaning lady who is pushing her child on the swing as well. They naturally strike up a conversation. They talk about the weather and how nice it is and how cool it is to be a parent at this particular stage of life. And so Hosea then proceeds to introduce his kids to said woman. And so he says, oh, this is little Jezreel or little Hiroshima. <laughs> and she's rather shocked by this particular thing, but he goes on to point over to Lo Ruhama, who's like climbing up the slide and about to go down, and he says, and over there is not loved. And then uh, out of the corner of his eye, he actually sees his uh, very uh, racially dressed wife uh, sitting on the, on the bench, uh, probably feeding at this particular time in light of the age span here, uh, little Loami, which is not mine. And so he says, oh, that's not mine over there. <laughs> as uh, likely she is flirting with this woman's husband. And so naturally, this causes some consternation within the woman. It makes the whole uh, playground interaction a little awkward. And so she's like, um, is there, are you guys okay? Like, what? Is this a joke? And he's going to say, no, it's not okay, and this is not a joke. God told me to name them this because of our country's adultery against him, horrible things will come in days ahead. The first thing that will happen is that the day of Jezreel will take place. This, this blood and this slaughter that happened historically in the past with the dynasty of Jehu, and I don't have time to get into it, read Second Kings if you want to find out, it's going to come back and bite us, and we will be characterized by a place of great slaughter one day. And uh, not loved over there, or no mercy. God is communicating that He will no longer show mercy to us. He has been compassionate. He has been long-suffering. But He has His limits. He is about to withhold His mercy from us. And little not mine over there, it, that's the one that's communicating that God is going to, in effect, divorce us. We will not benefit from His covenant promises in the way that we have in times past. He's going to let us go our own way and do our own thing. This is what's coming to the nation of Israel. And so awkward interaction after awkward interaction 
interaction after awkward interaction, Hosea is communicating to the nation that judgment is coming. And this is all part of God's righteous wrath. This was the way that he had designed it. Even though the relationship, and I, I, theological time out here, even though the relationship between God and Israel is different than the relationship between God and his new covenant people, there is a lesson to be learned. God hates sin and will punish it. You said, Justin, well, what is the difference? Does this mean that if we sin, if we're unfaithful to God, he's going to throw the covenant curses at us? <laughs> no. That's the old covenant. In the old covenant, the relationship with Yahweh was initiated by grace, but the unfortunate thing about the old covenant was that it had to be carried on by works. God was kind to pick them and to bring them into his presence, but he said, okay, if you want to stay as my special people, there's going to be a sense in which you've got to keep up your end of the bargain. Do the good things and you'll get blessed. Do the bad things, you're going to be cursed. It's kind of scary. And yet for God's new covenant people, it doesn't work that way. The curses that were deserved on account of sin have been absorbed already in Jesus Christ, and there's nothing left for us anymore but blessing. That's what makes the new covenant different. That's why the gospel is so great. But it doesn't change the fact, friends, and please don't lose this, that God still hates sin and it is worthy of punishment. Somebody still had to pay this price. Somebody was going to have to endure this curse. I think sometimes we have too low a view of God in which we're just thinking like, oh, he's just this nice old granddad that kind of sits up there in heaven somewhere and he overlooks all the bad things. No, he is righteous, he is holy, he hates sin, he will punish it. But he will enable there to be a substitute, someone who will stand in and take that punishment for us. A penalty must be paid, but it doesn't mean that we necessarily have to pay it. He would ultimately enable his son to do this, which sets up the surprising reversal. So I'm, we're looking at this first portrait, the family photo. You've got this scene of them uh, playing out on the playground. He's announcing his kids' names. It seems that God was gracious in the first place by even initiating a relationship with somebody so sinful, but there's still judgment to come on account of such said disobedience. And now, though, things get kind of weird. Because right as Hosea is saying, hey, all these horrible things are going to be happening in our country, he then says, but this isn't the end of the story. Look at your text in verse 10. It says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Notice that. Like they were going to be decimated. They were going to be destroyed. They were going to not be his people. And like here it's saying, okay, you're going to be blessed with uh, an abundant number of people. And notice, keep reading in verse 10. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. Remember, that's what Loami's name meant. It shall be said of them, children of the living God. Lo, Ami's name will be changed to children of God. Verse 11, and the children of Judah and the children of uh, Israel, this divided kingdom, shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. They're going to be united again under one leader. 
and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Whereas Hiroshima used to be known as this place of devastation and destruction, it will now be a day of great celebration. All the horrific things that would happen in the land of Israel would be fully and finally reversed under the leadership of a common king. Now that is an interesting conversation on the playground. Not only do you have the righteous wrath being revealed, but then you also have in this this ultimate grace. See, here's the key to understanding the prophets, friends. You're going to see curse after curse after curse, but they're all temporary. God will regularly step up and say, but I will pour out blessing that will transcend the experience of this curse. There will be a full and final blessing. Your sin may bring curses in the short run, Israel, but in the end, I will be good to you. I will be gracious to you. I will honor my word to Abraham. You will be my people. And so there's always this back end that that explains this ultimate grace that comes from God. And I know they seem like mixed messages. You're like, Justin, I don't understand. It's like Hosea himself seems to be suffering from dissociative identity disorder. I mean, sometimes he's just saying that the whole place is going to hell in a handbasket. And then all of a sudden, just a few verses later, he's saying that everything's going to be fantastic. But what you have to understand is that the curses are temporary. The blessings are permanent. And this would become clear in days ahead. So here God previews in this first portrait that His chosen people, even though they deserve covenant curses, will ultimately receive His covenant blessings. And how would that happen so clearly? It happens by the Son taking on that curse on their behalf. You remember the passage in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then that, that favorite text in Romans 8.1, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, don't read the prophets and think, Oh my goodness, I sinned this week. The curses from heaven are coming. <laughs> if you are in Christ, it's already been paid for. There is nothing left for you but ultimate blessing. And so the love is relentless. You see it in the family portrait, but there's a second portrait that you see in chapter 2, and that is the portrait of of divorce court. There's a portrait of the family. There's a portrait of this divorce court. Uh, We saw in chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 2, verse 1, this great reversal. You notice that from reading it carefully. But then when you get to chapter 2, verse 2, all of a sudden things change. There's like a scene change. It's like, you know, if you ever were a kid and you read comic books, you know that um, like when you were in a new box that some time had certainly elapsed. (laughs) We're in a new box here. And you know that the time has elapsed because the children are actually old enough to be spoken to. In this particular text, Hosea is going to appeal to the adult children, some of whom are his, by the way, some of whom came from other men, and says, look, something has happened. She is no longer with me. Let's together go out and find your mother. Appeal to her. 
bring her back. And you know what we see in this, one of those other features that we saw in the first portrait, and that is God's loving initiative. All right, so this woman has gone out on her own again, and Hosea is initiating a search and rescue. He says, bring her back, bring her back. I want her back. Let's get her back. Look at verse 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. He's saying, like, in effect, we are living apart from one another. Uh, Plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from her breasts. This is graphic, the fact that he actually wants to go back and get her. It's one thing to marry someone like this and say, all right, I'm going to give you a fresh start. But it's something else entirely for the relationship to be consummated and then for that person to go back into that world again. And yet God says, you know, I'm not going to let her go. I'm going to go again. I want her back. And what's interesting is that he's willing to do this in the most drastic of ways. So he shows his loving initiative by actually displaying once more his righteous wrath. Notice how it's depicted. He's actually willing to portray his anger and his judgment to help this woman come back. Verse 3, we want her back, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are the children of whoredom, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Notice this, he's saying here is, I will deprive her. Now this is where, friends, you're going to have to be flexible. Because the metaphor jumps back and forth from the relationship of Hosea to the relationship of Yahweh. Sometimes it seems really clear that he's talking about Gomer. Sometimes it seems really clear that he's talking about Israel. Well, who is he talking about primarily here in chapter 2 in this divorce court scenario? It's Israel. He's talking about land. Land being stripped of its resources. This is the the, the curses that we read about in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. They will be deprived. They will be stripped naked. They will not have that which they need. I mean, that was a husband's fundamental responsibility, to provide that which the wife needed. And Yahweh is saying here, I will take that away. I will deprive them. They will be frustrated. Notice this. Even though they're going to pursue these relationships, verse 6, notice what Yahweh will do. Therefore, as they're seeking this from these other countries, they want these provisions, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. God is basically saying, I'm going to make it hard for Israel. They're going to seek their good. They want wool. They want flax. They want gold. They want silver. They're going to try to get it from Egypt. They're going to try to get it from Assyria. They're going to try to get it from experimental worship with Baal. But I am going to make it hard for them to do so. I am going to get in their way. I am going to allow them to experience the futility of searching for satisfaction in the wrong places so that in the end, they will come back to me. I'm going to let her experience hardship so that she'll understand the great relationship that she can have with me. Notice it. That's what he wants. He says, 
in verse 7, she shall pursue the lovers and not overtake them, and then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain and its time and my wine and its season. God returns to this speech. He said, he already explained why he's going to do it. I'm going to do it because I want her back. But he, he repeats that he will deprive her of these things because she needs to remember that ultimately they came from him. It was... Um, really interesting to hear one guy to try to modernize this for us. I, I just want to read here. He says, in this case, God blocked the roads of commerce that Israel traveled to make deals with other nations. It's like Hosea knew that Gomer was leaving the house every night to drive down to the red light district. So he started hiding her keys. He slashed her tires. He went to the corner of the street where she gets most of her business, and he installed a row of street lights and an ice cream shop and a Build-A-Bear store. <laughs> he was doing everything possible to make it hard for her to pursue this lifestyle. And friends, that is the grace of God. He sometimes allows us to experience the emptiness of our idolatry because He wants us back. He withholds blessing because, like a good father chastising a son, He knows that obedience is better. This is why for, in other places in Scripture, we look to the book of Ecclesiastes and we see the emptiness of Solomon's exploits. Why is it that God would take the food in Solomon's mouth and turn it to ash? Because he wanted him to understand that it wasn't the food that satisfied. It was him. And this is the same thing that happens in Romans 1. Interestingly, one of the unique forms of God's judgment in Romans 1 is when people don't acknowledge God as creator, he lets them have what they want and it destroys them. And then they can be in a position to return to him. I was just talking to a friend this week who was telling me about um, a gifted individual in his life who had made a lot of money and um, built multiple houses for himself, even at an early age, experienced much success and yet was still wrestling through the emptiness of that accomplishment. Is that God being mean and vindictive? No, that's God's grace. He allows us to experience these negative things to turn us back to Himself. And so, in experiencing this, this emptiness, we see the blessing of nerve endings. Some of us sometimes would be like, man, I wish I just couldn't feel any pain. <laughs> I don't know why I have this pain. Uh, friends, pain is telling you that something is wrong. You would destroy yourself if you couldn't feel pain. And so God in His grace enables us to feel the pain of our disobedience so that we can return to Him, so that we could take our hand off that hot stove. It is so that we could grasp Him in His grace. I, um, I love the old uh, poem and hymn. Uh, written by John Newton. You know that he was a, a slave trader turned Christian and then eventual pastor. And in one of his longest songs in the entire hymn book, he tells the story of a prayer that he prayed, and it sounds rather autobiographical. In this prayer, he asked God uh, to, to bless him and help him grow in grace. 
And so he says in one of the verses that he expected God to do this just by blessing him and uh, magically changing his heart's desires, but it doesn't happen the way that he originally intended. And I pick up on verse 4. He says, instead of this ease, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free, and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayest find thy all in me. Friends, the pain, the frustration, the emptiness that you feel from time to time, could it be that God is hedging your way to point you back to Him? When was, for example, the last time that God crossed, to use Newton's term, your fair designs? Was it to show that He was greater, that He was better, that He was more satisfying? What, what, what are some of the ways that he has in recent days, again, quoting from the poem, laid you low? What has he allowed that has almost killed you? What inward trials has he employed from self and pride to set thee free, to break your schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayest find thy all in he? Friends, we should be careful to consider that some of the hardship that we experience may actually be God's grace leading us back to Him. But what's fantastic about chapter 2 and all of its graphic descriptions of judgment is you'll see once more that there is ultimate grace. Even though she goes out on her own and even though he says, I'm going to send hard times to get her back, at the very end of the chapter, notice what happens. Grace once again prevails. He does not leave her out on the street. It prevails. Look in verse 18. It says, and, oh, excuse me, verse 14 of chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Paul's valley of Achor's were Achan and his family were stoned. Uh, that was a place of judgment. He's saying, I'm going to take a place of judgment and I'm going to turn it into a place of hope. And we continue reading, and there, shall answer, there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Notice he's saying, I'm going to reverse it all. I'm going, to, I'm going to fix it. In the end, I will fix it, and we will get it back to the way that it is supposed to be. Verse 16, and in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by my name no more. Notice that. He's saying, I'm going to fix it one day so that you will never be tempted again to go and pursue another lover. I will take away the desire. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, well, I don't know. This seems like a violation of my free will. <laughs> I don't know about you, but if I could take a pill... 
uh, that would make me only want to eat healthy things and not desire the things that constantly ruin my diet, I think I'd take it. I would love to have some of these cravings of mine that I know are for my destruction and have them eradicated. You know what the text is saying? There will come a day in which God fully and finally erases all aberrant desire. That's awesome. That is a promise of the new covenant. We see further new covenant promises here, something permanent, something bigger than any of the curses. Notice verse 18, it says, and I will... Make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Do you see what he's describing here? A day in which there's no more war, a day in which the entire creation benefits from the blessings of Genesis 1 and 2. Friends, this, is, this transcends any curse. He's saying, I'm going to make it all like it should be. This is when I finally right all the wrongs. That day is coming. And notice verse 19. I will betroth you to me, and listen to this, forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord This is going to be permanent. We're going to have a permanent relationship. I'll never let you leave me again. Verse 21, and in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel, that, that thing associated with destruction. And I will sow her for myself in the land. Notice these reversals. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. God's grace prevails in the end. That's just the second picture. Are you seeing the portraits? This is an unrelenting love. There's one more, one more portrait. We looked at the family photo. We've looked at this courtroom scene in which judgment was promised, but only for their good and return. And now let's look at the final portrait. And I think that we could most easily depict this as the desperate search. It seems that it happens again. Look at verse 3, I mean chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord, or Yahweh, loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins. Go again. Hosea, do this again. Scholars are divided as to whether or not maybe Gomer has passed away. And in light of this, God is sending Hosea on another mission to marry another promiscuous woman. Or the fact that it says go again could indicate that her name is just not being used and he's saying, okay, go get her again. It could be Gomer. But either way, you're thinking, poor Hosea. Like, you know, three strikes, you're out. And yet here she is on on third strike, and God says, no, throw another pitch. I want you to go and get her again. It's relentless. It's absolutely relentless. In fact, not only is he supposed to go get her, but it says in this time she's not actually involved in harlotry, but it says that she is an adulteress. It seems that she has settled down with another guy, which is, I mean, 
Seems even worse. (laughs) Now she's finding satisfaction and safety long-term with someone else. And notice what it says to do. It says, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins, uh, verse 2, so I bought for her 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. He buys her back from this individual. I mean, this is, this is crazy. This is stunning. It doesn't even make any sense. By the way, something else that doesn't make much sense to especially English readers, is cakes of raisins. Somebody's like, man, I wouldn't mind having a raisin cake. (laughs) Nobody really knows what cakes of raisins are. They just assume that it was this thing that was offered in service to Baal. The point is that she is off on her own. She is finding this satisfaction somewhere else. And Hosea doesn't just begrudgingly uh, get her back. He actually goes and pays for her all over again. This initiative is relentless. It is like waves beating on a shore. But I want you to notice that even in this, there will be some judgment that will help this woman understand and appreciate her relationship with Hosea. Look at verse 3. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Uh, This is tough for us to understand, but basically Hosea is saying, okay, you will be mine, I will take care of you, but you will not enjoy marital privileges with anyone, including me. Now, this confuses us as New Testament believers because we're like, Christ has said that, you know, we are married to him. Understand, friends, this is written to the northern tribe of Israel. This judgment is one that was for them in particular. Even though God is saying, I will never disown you as my people, there will be a time in which you do not experience full marital benefit with me. And friends, that is the only way to be able to explain what has happened to the nation of Israel over the last several thousand years. Despite the fact that uh, they still claim allegiance to Yahweh, they have no functional rulership or ownership over this world. They are just around. And yet passages like Romans chapter 9 and the book of Revelation chapter 14 and also, um, excuse me, chapter Well, the 144,000 passages in Revelation, I'll say it that way, use Google. (laughs) I don't want to misquote anything. Give us indication that God will indeed restore these people one day. They're still His. And what is He doing in the meantime? He's enabling them to see under that old covenant like the, the problem of their idolatry in the past. They're still suffering for that. But one day they will find refuge in the Davidic king who will, who will have absorbed all of God's wrath for them. Look at verse 5. It says, Afterward, after this, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Uh, Friends, I don't know how else to interpret that than the fact that they will finally recognize Jesus as their Messiah, and they will enter fully and finally into this relationship of blessing. Uh, I know that 
Uh, some people could naturally assume that because of where I come from and my background and training that uh, I'm just naturally always going to assume some future uh, for Israel. <laughs> uh, that is true. I think that the Old Testament does give indicate that there will be a future for Israel. And passages like this make it crystal clear to me. I wouldn't know any other way to interpret it. But I want you to know that even though I believe that, I do not see this passage as limited to Israel. God's grace in this will be quoted in other places in the New Testament to refer to the inclusion of all kinds of people who didn't deserve to be in special relationship with God. It says, The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter's days. I mean, there is coming a, a latter day where something was promised specifically to Israel that they would enter into a relationship with him. But here's the thing that you can't predict from the Old Testament. You look at this and you're like, wow, that's really cool. I wish I was an Israelite. I wish I was Jewish. <laughs> But the great mystery of the New Testament is that God intended all along to include people who never deserved to even be in that family line. I mean, you should be feeling like a little bit of an outsider, like, man, man, that would be really cool. I wish God would promise that to me. And then when you read the Gospels and you read the epistles, you find out that, no, he's included you in this as well. His relentless grace is more amazing than you could possibly imagine. That is why the first song that we sang today is let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. There is a sense in which God wanted all of his people to enter into these promises, to enjoy this delightful end. And I want you to understand that it all happened on account of this one who would pay a price to secure a wayward bride and bring her back into full and final fellowship with him forever. In the text, it's clear that Hosea pays with some barley and some cash. But the Redeemer pictured for us in the New Testament, he doesn't pay with just commodities. He pays with his own life. He makes us his final and forever people. He says to us, I am yours. You are mine. I have initiated this relationship, and though you may suffer hardship from time to time, in the end, we are one. All is well. It's relentless. You know, my greatest concern in the, the prophetic passages for you as a church is that you would misinterpret uh, these, these curses that are pronounced on the people of God and then all of a sudden be looking over your shoulder all the time wondering, all right, when is God coming to get me because I know I didn't obey perfectly. Friends, what I want you to understand is that in light of what Christ has accomplished for us in the new covenant, the price has been paid. The curses are satisfied. There's no looking over the shoulder. We are in the final phase of this in which we will receive that ultimate and final glory. The punishment has already come on Christ. And so you should walk out of this saying, like, wow, he's not going to give up on me. 
I mean, I think sometimes we see ourselves in the first portrait and we're like, oh man, man, that was huge. God saved me out of my sin. God put me in this relationship with himself. Man, you should have known my past before I got saved. And what we think of salvation is that like some kind of a fresh start. Like God hit the reset button. But then all of a sudden, it's up to us to keep up our end of the bargain. No, that's old covenant thinking. That is not the gospel. You didn't just get a fresh start. You got a new family existence. It is impossible for him to divorce you. (laughs) He's already paid it all. Some of you would say, oh, well, I've been saved, and some of the greatest sins that I've committed have been after the time of my conversion as opposed to before. But do you remember those passages written to believers in 1 John 1, 1.9, for example, and Colossians 2.15? 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember Colossians chapter 2. It is such a beautiful text. I remember talking with my wife about this. It was when we first met, and she told me that this was her life verse. And I don't know why, like I had never heard it. Maybe it was because she just brought it to my mind. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I know sometimes we think that all means all the ones that I committed before I became a Christian. Friends, when he was nailed to the cross, all the sins that you would ever commit were in the future anyway. All of it has already been paid, even the ones you haven't committed yet. That's how deep the relationship is. The love is relentless. It is limitless. And that's why in the old hymn, the love of Jesus is likened to a rolling ocean that we've been thrown in. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Friends, this is a riptide you'll never escape. He is pulling you closer and closer to himself. I tell you today, rejoice. It's all paid for. The relationship is solid. His love is relentless. And if you're here and you've yet to receive this this benefit of this love that's offered in Christ, I would encourage you even now, just trust him for that. There is nothing you will do to earn it. Just trust him even now. It's yours. It's yours for the taking. He's already provided it. He's done it all. And I think that there is no more fitting way in light of what we've learned about God's relentless love than to drink and partake in celebration of that which he himself has already paid for.